I have to say I've been uh, really uh, in awe of some of your wonderful proposal stories. Uh, here's a couple more. Um, afternoon panel. <clears throat> My now hubby proposed at the top of the farm on the way to check newly born calves. Was eight years ago today. He pulled the bike over and said, do you think we should get married? I, of course... Said yes. That's from there, okay. And another one here. I proposed on the summit of Taranaki in a howling gale. I got down on one crampon. I yelled, Will you marry me? My girlfriend yelled back, What? (laughs) (laughs) And with us, because we have to keep it going, it's such a fun thing to do. Sean is with us. Kia ora, Sean. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What's yours? Well, I uh, got married 16 years ago, but as I was thinking about proposing, the the idea of, you know, I rehearsed in my head asking a question, and it just sounded so absurd. It sounded like a cliche, you know, and, and I, I, I didn't think that I'd be able to do it without, you know, keeping a straight face. And so <laughs> I had a colleague at the time yeah. who had a side hustle uh, as a, with a banner towing business behind aeroplanes, and I thought, well, there's the answer, the classic banner and so just was waiting for a moment and a group of us friends we decided we'd go and have a weekend at, at Waiheke Island at a, at a batch and so uh, I organised that at midday on the Saturday the plane would fly over the batch um, with the banner and that would be easy peasy um, and, and it started off alright but a, a sort of a dicky sausage on Friday night for dinner it gave me quite bad food poisoning and, oh, no. um, and it sort of ruined the romance from, from my side with it, you know, both ends really. And I was feeling, feeling less than ideal on the Saturday morning. And, and eventually, you know, people started saying, well, what should we do with the day? Let's go for a walk. It's beautiful weather. And I thought, oh, here we go. That's just what I need with unreliable bowels as a, as a walk. But um, eventually I agreed, yes, I'd be able to handle it. But it was getting jolly close to midday, and we, we were walking down the cliff um, from the house to the to the beach below um, through Bloomin' Bush, right? And so there all these trees overhead, and I'm thinking, well, if the plane flies over, we'll never see it. So I, I, I had to put on a pretty decent turn of speed to get down the hill. Um, got there all right, and then dawdled along the beach, and eventually the plane does fly over. And I say, oh, look, darling, there's a plane with a banner behind it. And she's looking at it, and she says... What does it say? I can't read it. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Sean, good on you. Thank you. Are you. Can I just ask, are you still married? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yep. Good on Very you. Very happy. Hey, lovely story. Thank you for that. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate all your feedback and all your comments on our question of the day this afternoon. Thank you very much all. Now, uh, to this, it was such a huge part of our lives, wasn't it? Scanning and became a daily feature. Getting your phone, jumping onto the COVID app, scanning it to get a takeaway coffee to the supermarket. It would create a timeline of where you've been, which was often highlighted at the 1pm press conferences. When someone broke the rules, they were at this pizza bar, that pub. Well, the COVID Tracer app no longer available. With us, Dr Andrew Chen, Research Fellow with Koitu, the Centre for Informed Futures at Auckland University. Dr Chen, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. I was just thinking and getting ready to tell you my proposal story, but I think we've moved on from that moment. I didn't expect that, Dr. Chen. Um, If you could email it to me, I will put it in the Friday mailbag. (laughs) Because we we do want to get to this. This is 
I mean, it feels like the closing of a piece of New Zealand history, doesn't it? Do you think that a tattered, ripped QR code will one day feature into Papa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something that I find quite interesting is that there are still a lot of QR codes up, even though no one's really scanning them. And in fact, mm. in, um, the apps wouldn't let a lot of people scan the QR codes anymore. So uh, it's this odd thing of infrastructure where it looks official and it's the same effect that you get if you walk around in a high-vis um, vest. You know, people think that it's legit and they don't, they're scared to take these posters down. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it is a part of New Zealand history. It's part of, it was an important part of how we responded in the pandemic. It was one of the things that allowed people to very um, openly and actively show that they were part of um, doing something about COVID-19. This is before we had face masks, of course. And um, in, in that sense, I think it did give people a sense that they were doing something active to um, fight the pandemic. Just thinking about it, uh, Nwanthi, such a part of our lives, wasn't it? You know, you're scanning to the supermarket or those one pm press conferences. What's your I thoughts? Know. I know. I just I was just reflecting, um, um, Dr. Chen, as you were talking, just the thought of, you know, being accepted into going to a, a restaurant or, you know, yeah, it's just the... It was just a day-to-day. It was like pull your phone out and you had to make sure your phone was charged to do that as well every single time. Um, yeah. I, what do you think, looking back now, um, Dr. Chen, um, your reflections on that app? I mean, I had some reflections at the time because yeah. we went through some emotions of being really angry about it. Yeah. <laughs> but also like, oh, we've got to use this to stay safe. So, In hindsight, what do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that it has shown is that New Zealanders are actually really good at coming together and um, responding when we need to. Uh, about at, at its peak, we had about 60% of the population using the app. Uh, and you might go, oh, well, there's 40% of the population not using the app. But when you look at other jurisdictions in many European countries, it was sitting at 20%. Um, and so for us to be able to get to 60% was actually pretty good. Hmm. And, um, you know, I've still got it on my phone, Andrew, and um, I just checked it out before for the first time in, gosh, a year maybe, and apparently there's still 564,207 phones with Bluetooth tracing active today. So there's still a lot out there. Um, Again, I remember the one o'clock media um, extravaganzas, and um, I mean, it seems like a lifetime ago now, but you look, look in the papers and everything, people are still dying of COVID today you know you, the, the, you know there might be 20 people a week dying of COVID gosh in those days one person dying was a national tragedy and now we're totally blasé about it it's just changed yeah, it's definitely changed um, with the Bluetooth function of the app I mean most of this year we were still seeing hundreds of people um, reporting that they were sick and using the app to notify people that had been around them that mm. they were sick uh, on average, every person who used the Bluetooth function of the app to notify people that they've been sick uh, not ge- generated notifications for between three and four other people. Um, and those are people who, you know, some of them might have been family members, but some of them might have otherwise not known that they were exposed to COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while in the current era, you know, you get the notification, you don't necessarily need to do anything about it. Um, I think, you know, most people, if you got the notification, you'd have a think and go, oh, okay, maybe there was that exposure event a few days ago. Maybe I should be a bit careful. Maybe I shouldn't go visit Gran, those sorts of things. And that all helps in uh, reducing that spread, even though most of us are living life as normal. Can the idea of a tracing app be expanded or utilised in 
other ways, maybe for other health applications. We've now had a mm. nationwide experience, extraordinarily unique. We'll remember this in decades to come. Could it be taken and utilised? Yeah, there is a possibility. Um, but I would say that the key characteristic of COVID that meant something like anti-COVID tracer was so useful was just speed. Um, because the likelihood of uh, the, the virus being in, uh, spread it was high and then um, the time from when somebody caught the disease to when they would actually be sick was so short and there was actually the period where they would be infectious before they started showing symptoms, having an app like this with the speed is really important. We've actually been doing contact tracing for a long time, for many decades, but for a lot of other diseases that are a lot slower. Um, and so you, you've been able to do contact tracing using just phone calls or even in some cases sending letters in the post, and that's been okay. Um, so I think in the future, if we were to use a tool like NZ COVID Tracer again, that speed would have to be a really key uh, problem that we're trying to solve. Really interesting, uh, Andrew Kiota. Thank you for your time there. That's uh, Dr. Andrew Chen, Research Fellow with Koi Tu, the Centre for Informed Futures. <laughs> it just brings back memories in the way eh? It's quite weird. It is. And I, I mean, Three I never years. did the one, one o'clock press conferences whilst well, so I did Matt. I just, I never did it. <laughs> wasn't, 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 <laughs> not even from the start. Wasn't your thing. Is it that, is that, is that right? Thing. Really? Yeah. No. yeah. Oh, yeah. That, was, that was the best entertainment when you were all locked up doing nothing. <laughs> Good old Ashley at one o'clock. I mean, heck. You know. yeah, no, we, we, we had it here, didn't we? We were broadcasting it. Um, I proposed at sunset on a beach in Fiji so that every time we see a sunset, we can recall that mm. moment. So, look, I, I really appreciate um, your wonderful proposals, stories coming through. They've been really special to go through and read. So, uh, And they're very honest and they're your own stories. So kia ora for that uh, across the country. And keep them coming if you like. Um, you can text them or you can email them, the panel at rnz.co.nz. And Chris writes regarding that interview, this is an excellent interview with um, uh, the criminologist uh, Alice Mills. Uh, there is a uh, outstanding charity in Christchurch called Pathway, who run a specialist unit at the men's prison, supporting to prepare for six to 13 months pre-release and continuing to support once in the community with housing. Uh, low numbers of reoffending, well documented by Canterbury University. To this, one business owner would like to see more stringent background checks for people creating professional online profiles. Mark McRoy from Mr. Green spoke to RNZ about an experience looking into a potential business coach. The coach was promoting himself online as a business advisor. After searching, McRoy found out that the man was still serving a sentence of home detention for corrupt use of the Official Information Act. So how do you know? If you can trust the credentials of a professional profile with us, NetSafe's Chief Online Safety Officer, Sean Lyons. Kia ora, Sean. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you doing? Good, good. Is it common for people to create fraudulent or misleading professional profiles? I mean, <laughs> do you see much of it in your line of work? Um, it's, it's not something that we get reported a lot. I mean, do people create fraudulent profiles generally? Yes. And, and I think the, 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 the lesson there is that if they can do it on a social media site in order to you know, impress somebody about who they are and what they do, there's nothing really that stops them from doing it on a business site and, and using those same kind of um, rules, if you like, um, to, to talk about who they are professionally. Yeah, well, let's jump in with our panel, Alan. 
Yeah, um, I mean, the thing about this is, is how are you going to enforce this? You know, if, if you're, you're compelling people to be honest about themselves online, um, you know, Tinder, um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to enforce. I mean, you know, in a perfect world, yep, absolutely. But and, and in order to do this, presumably you're going to have to have some sort of a law change at the very, very least, you know. So I, I, I see uh, a lot of difficulties with this. Sean? Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. You, you hit the nail on the head. It's about whether or not you can you can force someone to do that. And and generally, when, when we're talking about professional business profiles or any profile, really the only rules in place there are the rules that the platform says. Mm, and, yeah. and I think most business profiles will probably say, "Be honest, be straight about who you are." Mm. But but really, I mean, the only consequence there is is potentially you get removed from that business profile platform um, w- without something that says you must. Then there really isn't any way to compel it, and we're putting the the burden um, then on the platforms themselves and saying you must do it, and they can really turn around and say, well, these are our rules, our platform don't like it, don't use it. It's a bit worrying, isn't it, Wayne? Thing, I mean, you're in the business community. In the final instance, how can you trust someone? Well, you can't really, Wallace. And I guess in that <laughs> sense, you've got to do your own checks and balances, right? And I think. Um, as you're saying, Sean, you know, there's a component of this that the platforms need to be accountable for and be and really hold people accountable for as well if they're going to leverage and utilise those platforms. But on the other side, I think it, it pays to not just be our own little detectives but do a police check or be really transparent about the fact that there are some gaps and, you know, you know, some concerns and we want to we want to be able to iron those out and, and do the, them properly. The irony being that now it's easier than ever to do that online as well. So it's sort of it working is. both ways, I guess. Sean? Yeah, well, absolutely. And the the, the idea of, of of doing due diligence to look into somebody's background is is reading a profile that they wrote is probably quite faulty. So, I mean, like you say, if, if we need to uh, test that what they say because we're about to you know enter into some kind of agreement, be that employment or contractual, then we have to find some kind of independent third party check, a police check, an MOJ check, whatever is relevant to the the circumstance that we're doing. But simply googling them and and looking at what's out there might be a part of it. But it's not enough, and, and it certainly isn't enough if we come back and find that we've been stung by somebody telling us uh, telling us porky pies online. Mm. Yeah. So, is there any good rule of thumb that we might need to or want to follow, Sean? But I, I think it is just to be um, cynical to some degree that when, <laughs> when somebody says, "I have done this," if they've said they've done this, then then great. Either ask them to provide some background or. or, or do some research around it, but talk to the organisations or individuals involved in whatever it is they claim to do and, and, and find out whether or not there's, there's, some, there's some truth in it, whether or not it's genuine. And, and if you can't find it and the person can't give you some proof, then maybe you have to assume that that, that particular fact, because it's not checkable, you have to you know, eliminate that from your, from your, from your process. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. Thank you, Sean Kiora. That's uh, Sean Lyons there, NetSafe's Chief Online Safety Officer. But uh, you've been in the business world for some time, Nwanthi. Do you do you do you find this? You know, someone might be on LinkedIn. They've got the uh, the bio. Next minute, you find hmm, it's not doesn't quite match to what they said they were. Absolutely. Does that, does that, does that happen? <laughs> Absolutely does. Well, as particularly the qualifications. And the years as well. So someone would say, well, I studied at, you know, X university during this time. And you're going, okay, and what did, and when you start to break it down in terms of what did you study or, um, and you start to then look at their LinkedIn plus their actual bio in terms of their CV, um, it's the quals that actually kind of give it away. Alan? Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was interesting just sort of reading up on this and um, seeing what they do in the states because I was sort of under the impression that if you um, committed a felony in the states that you had to disclose that in sort of job interviews and stuff. But apparently you don't. There's, it depends on which state you live in. So they have these things called ban the box laws, and you're not allowed to ask about prior convictions and stuff. So. Um, yeah, but again, I just I just see this as being probably unworkable, really, sadly. Mm. The panel are NZ National. We have uh, Noanthi Samarakon and uh, Professor Alan Blackman with us uh, this afternoon. It's uh, nine away from five on the panel, by the way. Uh, if you can't catch us live, do uh, just a reminder that we are on iHeart, on Apple, on Spotify and on the RNZ App. Uh, speaking of apps, a new app has been developed, uh, outing where outlining rather where Dunedin's historic underground toilets were. Of all things, I never knew Dunedin had historic underground toilets. I hear you ask, why were they underground? It's a good question. All to be part of a series of heritage walks of Dunedin's built heritage, of which is very rich, uh, at the Otipoti Dunedin Heritage Festival starting October the 5th. And with us is Alison Breeze from the Otipoti Dunedin Heritage Festival, the coordinator. Kia ora, Alison. Kia ora. This is so fascinating. Tell us about this app. Uh, well, this app has been under development for some time, um, but I've been very lucky to work with um, the Te Punga Punga um, Otago Polytechnic IT uh, students and uh, I've got four of them working for me this year and they've um, helped develop this game app um, which focuses on the 1909 Octagon Underground Toilets and basically it gives the public a chance to time travel back into the Octagon in 1909 to see what it was like. Very, very cool. Very, very. I want to know more about these toilets. So um, I've seen the app development. It looks very, very sharp, very flash. Tell us about the underground toilets. So the underground toilets were quite a phase, um, which started in Europe and London, and um, especially in places like Germany and things like that. And it was all that sort of Victorian ideal of all of a sudden, even though everyone needed them, um, public toilets were seen as terrible places that um, were very offensive, so they tried to move them underground um, so that there were more appropriate places for them. And Dunedin, um, yeah, Dunedin <laughs> was pretty, um, like to think of themselves as quite a modern city, and so there was quite a few councillors and members of the public who petitioned for quite a long time for underground toilets or just more public toilets in general in Dunedin. Christchurch was the first place to get um, underground. And then Dunedin was the second place, and we got three of them. Um, the Octagon was the first one that had women's toilets on one side and men's on the other. Up till then, uh, women didn't have any toilets in the public because they weren't really meant to be out and about. Um, <laughs> wow. Some, some department stores um, definitely provided for them, but of course they're only dealing with a certain clientele who could afford to go shopping and use the restrooms. So um, everyone else, especially if you had children... Um, you didn't go out. and We had to plan your day very carefully because there were no public toilets for women to use. Um, there were only just some pretty um, terrible-sounding uh, urinals that were available across town, and there was only like 10 across the whole city. Um, most of them are in places where there's still toilets today, to be fair. Um, and so, yeah, the Otagon one was um, built, and there was one in what people know today as the Exchange. Um, mm-hmm. And interestingly, the two big ones were under monuments. It was quite a popular thing Gosh. to put them... 
under a monument. We've yeah. got a panel here, uh, Nwanthi, your face says it all. <laughs> I'm just, Alison, I'm just, as you're talking, I'm thinking, yes. ha- how have we, I mean, I'm so glad we've obviously evolved into being more inclusive <laughs> in communities and in societies, but golly, just imagine what the life was like then. Just as you, yes. you know, just blows my mind. You're trying to work it out. <laughs> and as you said, Alison, go about the day, you know, based on your whereabouts. <laughs> <laughs> and even when these ones were built, um, the, which you'll see when you use the app when it goes live, is that the staircases were nick really narrow. So even women with their dresses on would have struggled to get down into them. Yes. And also, what did you do with your pram yes. <laughs> if you had babies? Like, yes. did you leave it at the top? Yes. How did you get it down? Um, so accessibility, even when they did get um, a chance to actually use them, it was still really difficult for women, especially. Mm. Mm. So I did learn something um, <laughs> reading up about this. Apparently Saturday is World Toilet Day. Who knew? Oh, there, we there go. you go. But, I um, did. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, it might have been you that was quoted, I believe. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm old enough to remember the um, octagon toilets down there and the, and the Star Fountain and all oh, of that. Oh, you recall them? Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're wow. around when I've been on the planet. So, But <laughs> yep. could, could I suggest a name for your app? Yes. Dunner's Dunnies. Uh, yeah, I've hey. heard that one before. I love it. <laughs> have you heard that one before, Alison? I have. I've oh, really? Damn it. Oh. I thought I was being... I can't train much. One, yeah. one thing that you did mention as part of, as part of uh, I, I guess, our social history is talking about the, the influence of Victorian uh, values on engineering. I mean, it's so interesting. You said people are actually quite interested in toilets. Yeah, they are. I'm surprisingly interested. Um, and that's why I'm trying to, um, I'm running three walking tours during this um, Heritage Festival that we've got here. Um, and I'm hoping we'll fill them with the, um, but generally I've been doing talks for the last ooh, five or six years. Um, very well attended. People um, have told me all sorts of fascinating stories about what they remember of the spaces. <laughs> but I think people are genuinely um, interested in things that they can't see or that have been uh, demolished. Um, yeah, these yeah. things. Yeah are quite foreign to people of younger age, like the underground toilets. Like, yeah, and then you say, well, they're still probably filled up with rubble underneath the ground, but um, people find that quite interesting. But it's a history that isn't often talked about, even though everyone needs the toilet. And um, sanitation history is always really important in cities. And how did local authorities supply this um, public need? You know, there's always people complaining about them, always issues with vandalism, um, much the same today, really, and it just repeats itself over and over again. Oh, but, this yeah. is so interesting, Alison. I might have to fly down or get get over to Dunedin yeah. to be part of that festival. It's, uh, it's wonderful. <laughs> Kia ora. That's Alison Breeze there, uh, part of the Otipori Dunedin Heritage Festival. That starts October 5. Isn't that interesting? That is so it's, fascinating. I'd, I'd go on that tour. I would too, actually. Just go to the loo before you go. Thank <laughs> you, Alan. Yep, nice, good contribution. <laughs> <laughs> now, DB says so with dresses on too. Yeah. Final final proposal because people found it so interesting. My Kiwi husband and I met purely by chance at a small art bar in an art centre in Hong Kong. I was having a quick drink with a girlfriend on the small balcony before going to a show. He briefly came in to have a quick drink. Uh, before attending a talk, never before going there. We had a brief chat, gave me his number, and soon after started dating. Two and a half months later, we went back for a quick drink before a special dinner and sat on the balcony again. He surprised me by proposing. I said yes. It'll always be a special place. We got married six months later, and I'm married six years, happily married in Tasman. 
Oh, wow. Very cool. Oh, Isn't that lovely? Very cool. Alan Blackman, the one with the Samara Cohen listeners, Sally, you've all been just fabulous. Thanks for being part of the show. Thank you. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow, 3.45. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint next.